Good morning. You guys a little bit fired up today? A little bit better uh, than normal. Nine o'clock was pretty much for us, you know, pretty much rocking. So um, you guys followed suit pretty well. And I'll, I say that because I tell you, I'm pretty fired up too. Um, do you know those moments though, like when you're in your specific area or arena or industry and like something that you love that not everybody necessarily loves, at least to the extent that you love, right? And it's, we all call it like geeking out, like, you know, you geek out on that because you go so far into something that everybody else is like, I just, you could have stopped 25 thousand minutes ago. Like, you know, five minutes is good for me. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of where I am today in the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth chapter two is where we're going to be. Typically, a lot of commentators or pastors will combine chapter two and chapter three together. But I just want to focus on chapter two um, because there's a lot of, and when I say hidden, I don't mean like hidden, like some kind of weird, mysterious. There's a lot of hidden depth and understanding uh, in what happens in this part of the story. Um, but I have to go back and kind of catch us up because not everybody was here uh, last week. And um, as we said last week, context is king and context matters because without context, you can say anything you want and make it mean basically anything you want, especially in our day and age today. So Ruth is kind of an odd uh, type situation because the book of Ruth really isn't necessarily primarily from the perspective of viewpoint of the lady for which the book is written. Uh, it's really written through the eyes of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, it's through her perspective and through her family, although we'll see Ruth speak a little bit more today than we have in the past. But this really centers around the idea of, of who Naomi is, her family, where they're from, and the struggle that she goes through. And we're going to see that struggle. Last week we saw that, and we'll reference it again today, that she moved away from her hometown in Bethlehem, the place that God had given his people, and she moved away with her family to a place called Moab, which was part of the enemies of God, even though it was still uh, around the region, around the area, that most of the time the Israelites would not pass through Moab, they would go around it because of difficulties and, and frustrations they had with one another, that at times they were at odds with each other to the point where they would go to war with one another, especially as you read later on in Israel's history in the kings as you get later on. On, uh, and down the, through the book of the Old Testament, or through the part of the Old Testament. And so we see her walk away from her people, walk away from her community, and really kind of walk away from her faith. And her husband takes her and her family to the place of Moab where they struggle. And the reason they left was because they grew up in a place called Bethlehem, which was known as the House of Bread. But unfortunately, I guess ironically, at that time, the House of Bread was not producing bread. Um, God had allowed a famine to come into the land and into their region, and so there, were, there was no water for no crops, and so there was no, no ability to produce food or bread. And so Elimelech, her husband, decides to move them and take the family away from uh, Israel and away from Judah, away from specifically Bethlehem, to the place of Moab. Now, it's in Moab that they plan to only go for a little while. Because Elimelech looks at their situation and realizes we don't have enough. We don't have everything that we need. And, and honestly, this was a promise that God made to the people before they entered into this land. He said, be careful. Because when you enter into the land and after you've been there for a season and for a time, you're going to lift your heads and see the rest of the peoples of the world. And you're going to desire the things that they have. You're going to think, we don't have enough. We don't have everything that everybody else has. And so we want to be like everybody else. Anybody been in that spot? You don't have to be like from thousands of years ago to that, for that to happen to you. We have the very same thing happen to us. We go through our life and God gives us and provides for us what we need. But from time to time, we lift our heads up and we see what they have or what somebody else has or what somebody down the street might have gotten. And we start to desire the things that they have. And when we do that, we start to walk away from God, which is exactly where Naomi finds herself. 
They walked away from God, and it's in this place in Moab that they only plan to stay a little while. Because Elimelech, being the provider and protector, decided to move his family away. We're just going to go there just long enough to get bread, and then we'll get what we need, and we'll come back. Anybody else ever done that? Say, I'm I'm just going to go for a little while. I'm just going to walk away from God and from his will and his provision and plan for my life. I'm just going to go for a little bit, get what I need, and then step back into a relationship with him. But the problem is, we never only go there for a little while. We always stay longer than we intended to stay. And Elimelech stayed longer than he intended to stay. And while he was there, he passes away. And so Naomi goes through this struggle and difficulty of losing her husband, especially as we said last week, in that day and time, to not have a a male provider was difficult in, in their era of history. And so not only does Naomi lose her husband, over the course of that decade, she loses her two sons as well. And so here's this woman left widowed and, and left with no children. But God in his provision throughout the entire story of, of Naomi and Ruth will provide small glimpses of hope for Naomi that she completely misses. Because she is so focused on the negativity and so focused on the things that have not happened for her or have happened to her that she misses the move in the hand of God. And this is where in this whole story we call God's hand being sovereign, which means he's just in control of all situations even though we can't see his hand moving. And I'll ask it again, you've been in that situation too. You have had things happen in your life that you think God is not present, that he has forgotten you, he has left you that nothing in your life is working out and it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and you have no relationship with this God you decided to trust because you lost family or you lost a job or because of brokenness that happens in your home. But God in his sovereign hand begins to move and at his first move on their behalf was bringing in this young woman named Ruth. And Ruth was one of Naomi's daughters-in-law and even though they didn't come together in the right circumstances, God blessed Naomi with these two beautiful daughters-in-law that would be there to help her and to support her and to love her. And so Naomi hears that rain has come back to Bethlehem and hears that people are starting to produce again and she knows that's her home and she longs to go back there. And so she decides to make the journey home. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, go back to Moab, go back to your family, go back to your home, go back to everything you've, you've ever known. It'll be easier for you there because our people are enemies with one another and it'll be hard for you to come into Bethlehem. Just go back to Moab. And so one of the daughters decides to do that. She goes back to her home, but the lady named Ruth, for which this book is written, speaks words to her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, that says, I'm not leaving you. Words that are covenantal, beyond a commitment, beyond a promise, beyond a wish or a hope. But she makes these words and says, I am with you. Wherever you go, I will go. If you die there, I will die there as well. To the point of your people will be my people. And your God that I have never known or trusted before will be my God. And so here's this woman who is an enemy of Israel and an enemy of God. Makes a a statement that we use today in wedding ceremonies. I will be with you, covenant with you, until death do us part. And she makes this statement of faith, even though she doesn't fully understand the statement she's making, she sees something in Naomi's eyes that tells her that this Yahweh God must be who he says he is. And she says, I'm with you forever. And so these two ladies begin the journey back home to Bethlehem. And as they come in, they come into the city and people start asking, is that Naomi? I thought she looked a little bit different. Is that the same woman that left? And Naomi says, no, 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 I'm not the same woman. I am beaten, I'm broken, I'm battered, and I'm worn, and I'm torn. And the reason I am is because God did this to me. 
And she continues to complain and continues to argue and continues to convict God over something he did not do. Because if you pull back in the story, we remember that this is set in the time of the judges. When the people had continually walked away from God over and over and over again. And so God allows this famine because his people were disobedient. And God allows Elimelech and her sons to die because their family walked away from Bethlehem. The place that God had planted them and the place that the Messiah, Jesus, would come through. And they walked away from God. He never walked away from them. And you and I find ourselves sometimes blaming God for our situations and our circumstances. And sometimes they're just part of life because life just happens. But other times, if we step back, we will realize it was us who intended just to walk away for a while, have walked away from God and allowed or caused these things to happen in our lives. But here's the glimmer of hope that she missed. She walks into town and says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because I went away pleasant and I came back bitter because life and God treated me bitterly. But she missed what God had provided. He had given her a daughter-in-law that would love her, care for her, be for her in ways she couldn't for herself. And they returned back to Bethlehem, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, at the barley harvest, meaning God was bringing bread and food and crops back to the place from which she had left. So there's this glimmer of hope as we enter into chapter 2. Look with me in verse 1 and 2. It says, So now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. So I want to stop here for just a second, halfway through verse 2, because it lists for us the four main characters that are a part of this story. Now, Elimelech comes and goes pretty quickly, but there are four main people that make up this story as we go through the book of Ruth. And I want to walk through those uh, one by one with you just real briefly. So Naomi is the woman we talked about who left Bethlehem full. She walked away. Her life was full. She had everything she wanted except for bread. And she lives in Moab for 10 years, loses her husband, loses her sons, comes back and says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I left full. I came back empty. I left pleasant and I came back bitter and God did it to me. Woe is me. How could God treat me this way? And again, her perspective is just so shifted to focus on what she had lost instead of on what God is continually providing throughout the course of her story. The next one is her husband, Elimelech. He was the man who planned to sojourn or to move to Moab for a little while. And while he was there, he ended up passing away, as we said. And, and, and he never meant, as we said earlier, he never meant to stay in Moab for a long time because none of us planned to walk away from God for a long time. But he walked away long enough that he lost his life and he lost his sons in the process. And then the next one is, is Ruth, this young woman. And, and you'll see this. We'll talk about this again in a minute. This is where I'm going to geek out, okay, in just a second. The, the author talks about Ruth several times in being a Moabite. And the reason that's important is because the Moabites were enemies of God and they were enemies of Israel. And it designates her also as the daughter-in-law to Naomi. And so we're going to see Ruth start to come into play and into picture in just a few minutes. And then here's the fourth one. This one man that some of you that know biblical history, you studied Ruth before, you've been dying for me to get to this name. Today we get to it, at least in part. And this is Boaz. And it lists Boaz as a relative of Elimelech. Now remember, Elimelech, because these are weird names they are hard to understand sometimes, right? Elimelech is the husband of Naomi who took his family away and died in Moab. But as Naomi comes back, there happens to be this man who's a part of Elimelech's family. This is what I want you to see in this section of the verses. And it's done it before. It takes, the author takes and positions Boaz and Ruth at opposite ends of the spectrum. 
When you go back and you look in verse 1 and 2, it says, Boaz, a worthy man. And in short order, it says, this is a man who is righteous. A man who is worthy, who's faithful, who's of integrity and character, who has wealth and position and status within the community. This is about as good of a man as you could find. This is what the author says, just very briefly, in three words, a worthy man. And then he goes on to list Ruth. Oh, she's the Moabite. She happens to be the daughter-in-law of Naomi, but she's the Moabite. Remember her? She's on opposite ends of God. So here's Boaz, part of the people of God, a righteous man, one of the greatest men in Israel of this day. And then here's this young woman who just happens to be a Moabite. She just got brought back into town because she just happened to be married to Naomi, one of the people of Bethlehem. And so the author wants us to know to visually separate these two people. That they don't go together. They don't go hand in hand. And, and, they, and Ruth does not belong in this place. And this is why I said last week, context matters, especially in stories like this. Because we could read this and go, okay, here's a man and here's a woman. This story is about the two of them, and it's a beautiful story that God has written. But it's a bigger picture. It's a bigger story that God is trying to tell, and he's always trying to tell us throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. And so here in this moment, the author takes the people of Israel and separates them from the rest of the people of the world or the, the people who are enemies of God. And throughout the course of this story, there are strategic moments where the author designates Ruth, not just a girl, not just a daughter-in-law, but designates her as that Moabite who doesn't belong in Israel. At the very beginning, when she marries one of the sons of Naomi, it designates her as such. At the end, as they're coming back into Bethlehem, the author says again, this is, Na- this is Ruth. Don't forget, she's a Moabite. She's walking back into Bethlehem to the people of God where she does not belong. Don't forget this. It tells us in, in verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, So Naomi returned back home, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, came with her. We're like, okay, like, I got it. I understand. She's a Moabite. She doesn't belong in Israel. Boaz and Ruth should never be together. They should not be connected with one another. Like, I got it. I understand the significance that, that she is from Moab, and she's an enemy of God. But what we just read in chapter 2, the author felt compelled once again to say, hey, don't forget, Ruth's a Moabite. Like, Dad, I got it. Like, I know I'm supposed to clean my room, right? You told me a thousand times. But I, I think the author's doing this because we don't fully get it. We don't fully grasp it. We don't understand the significance of this moment. See, I think the author is trying to set our feet deep in this moment to say, this is what's happening in history. But I want you to lift your head up, too, out of this moment, and I want you to look to the future reality of the beauty of what God is going to tell us through this story. So verse two continues. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So remember this, Here, here's this woman who's returned back to town, Naomi, who was, who'd walked away and everybody kind of wondered why she walked away. She comes back bitter, broken and beaten and helpless and hopeless and she has no means to provide for herself. And here comes this this woman, this daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's an enemy of God, back into town with her. And Ruth says, I have to do something to provide for you because I made a commitment, a covenant to you that I would be here with you and protect you. And if you die, it's because I didn't provide for us and I'll die with you. And so here's a beautiful glimpse of God's goodness even in this moment. Naomi has no means to provide for herself. So God allows her to come back home to benefit from the community And he sends Ruth, allows Ruth to go out into the field to glean. Now, 
This word glean, you guys know what it means. It means to take little bits and pieces of information. Maybe you've been in a setting like a convention or a conference or sat down with somebody that's five levels above you at work or in the corporation or organization, and you can't believe you're there. You just get to be there and listen to them talk, and you're picking up little bits and pieces of what they're putting down, right? You don't have all their knowledge or all their understanding, but you're writing down as fast as you can everything you can get from them. It also carries that idea that you pick up what people are dropping. Like their arms are so full as they walk away. Things are falling off the side and you're able to go on the outskirts and follow behind and just pick up the little pieces and the leftovers. This is exactly what Ruth is doing. Ruth, a Moabite, an enemy of God, is allowed to walk in one of the fields of the Israelites and walk behind the reapers and walk around the edges of the field to glean, to pick up little pieces to provide for herself. Now the author again wants us to catch that because he uses the word glean 12 times in chapter 2. It's like I got it at 4, you know, 7 was enough, but he's like, no, you need to hear this 12 times. This enemy of God was allowed to benefit from the community of God because the people of God were always designed to be a blessing to the peoples of the world. Got it with me? I know I'm geeking out a little bit, but this is such good stuff. So here's Ruth, this foreigner. Because the community of God was set up and intended to be set up this way, that sojourners, foreigners, those who are poor, widowed, orphaned, were allowed to benefit on the fringes from the good of the people of the community. And so Ruth, being this foreigner, is at the mercy of the people. But she sets out into this field to start to glean to provide for her mother-in-law. Verse 3. So she set out and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now watch this. She just so happened to be there. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So here's this woman walking in this big field, and she walks along to the section of field that Boaz just happened to own, right? I mean, just serendipity. It just, oh, how beautiful. I mean, these two, they just walk along, they trip and fall into each other's arms, and it's a beautiful story, right? No, you're not with me on that. You not watch any movies where that happens? So before we get to that point and we think, oh, what a beautiful picture. You know, somebody wrote after the fact that they wanted to bring some romance into the Bible. You don't need Ruth for that. Just go to Song of Solomon. They'll take care of it for you. If you're under 18, don't go. <laughs> so it's, it's making this idea that you think, oh, this just happened. This was coincidence. This was just, you know, mythological hopefulness. That they just happened to be there at the same time at the right place. Well, before you just kind of write this off as just, you know, a beautiful piece of literature that somebody went back and edited or redacted later, let me share you a personal story that really kind of approaches it from the opposite effect. So I was a junior in college a uh, long time ago. I was a junior in college, and I was going um, into that year. Uh, I got to move off of campus because he had to live on campus the first two years. So that third year, I got a chance, well, fifth year, but we'll call it third year. Uh, I got a chance to, uh, to live right off of campus in a little bitty house that you barely call a house. It's like 600 square feet. I had a room. My roommate had a room, and we had this kind of connected kitchen, living room area. But it was right off of campus, and it was ours. So we loved it, right? You didn't have to live in a dorm with a bunch of stinky guys. And so we lived there for an entire year. And so for this year, we were in this house. I had my group of friends. He had his group of friends. We were friends, and our friends were friends. But our friends didn't hang out all the time together. But they weren't just acquaintances, they were actually friends, right? Did I confuse you enough? Okay, 
So we live in this house for an entire year. He's playing soccer, going to school. I'm going to school, working part-time on the side. And we're hanging out together. Our friends are hanging out together. And at the end of that junior year, I decided I was going to spend some time with God, and I was done with girls, right? I was done. One of the best decisions I ever made until I met my wife, and that was the best decision I ever made. And I just said, I'm done with, with girls, I'm finished. At the end of my junior year, I'm going into my senior year. I'm going to finish school. I'm going to start my MBA after I'm done. I'm just going to work on my career. Like I'm done, done. Not just like, you know, I'm just mad, kicked a rock, done. Spent a whole summer with God praying through this. Like I am done, finished, done. Two weeks later, school starts back, and this beautiful angel walks across campus, and I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm finished. <laughs> I'm reneging on my commitment. I'm glad I didn't make a covenant. I'm reneging on my commitment. So I kind of try to work my way into her friendship group, and, and I find out you know, our friends are friends together, and uh, I try to work my way into her life, and I find out that she came into school done. Like, she wasn't looking for uh, a husband. She wasn't getting that kind of MRS degree. She was looking for a legit degree, and so she didn't want to have anything to do with guys. So we go into my senior year, her sophomore year, so we've both been there for a year. We begin talking. She finally relents and says, okay, if you quit throwing rocks at my window, I'll go out with you. And so we go on a date. We, we start having conversation, and we talk. And then we talk about last year. Come to find out that previous year when I lived in this house, and her friends had friends that were like my friends, and our friends hung out together. We'd never met ever that last year. Come to find out she had been in my house several times, not one, two, three, four, ten, like a bunch of times because her friends came and hung out at our house, obviously, when I wasn't there. And we talked a little further and come to find out she did the dirty dishes in my sink when I lived in that house. And for an entire year, we never met, ever. Now, this isn't a large school. It's about 2,200 people on campus. And also come to find out we were both part of FCA that met every single week, and we never even really met or knew of each other. Now, you can call that serendipity, you can call it coincidence, you can call it bad luck or whatever you want, but there's no logical reason we should have never met in that entire year at school. The only thing I can think of maybe is God was preparing me at the same time he was preparing her, and he was preparing our hearts and focusing us on certain things so that we were ready at the moment when he was ready to start and begin that relationship, that our hearts and minds were ready and prepared for that. So I don't think this is coincidence. I don't believe it's just mythology or romantic writing. I think this is the hand of God working in this young woman's life to do what only he could do. So their paths cross, and, and they cross in an interesting place because they're enemies of one another. Their peoples are enemies. The only time their paths crossed were on the battlefield. The only times they got together were to defeat one another. But yet here are Ruth and Boaz in a different kind of field. And instead of hearing words of destruction, Ruth hears Boaz speak words of blessing. And it begins to speak into and change her story. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to this young man, who is in charge of the reapers? Whose young woman is this? It's like, who is that woman, right? Like, who is that? I want to know who that is. He sees her for the very first time. He's like, I got to know her. But it's not in the college frat guy romantic sort of way. He just sees something in Ruth. He notices her, and something stirs up inside of him. This kind of sense of chivalry and protector and provider comes out of this worthy man. And he asks his servant, who is this woman? 
And so the servant begins to tell Boaz, this is the woman that was the Moabite who married one of Naomi's sons who died, who came back with her and returned back home. And everybody in town obviously had heard about this woman. But Boaz had never met her, and so he hears about who this woman is and her, her kindness toward Naomi. And the servant continues to tell Boaz, she's been in the field all day long. She has worked as hard or harder than any man. She's taken one short break, but she has been out there providing for her mother-in-law and bringing back things that she needs to sustain life. So he continues in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field. That's like one of the best lines ever, right? If you're not married, guys, take a page out of the scriptures and say, hey, you don't go anywhere. I'll protect you. You stay here. I'll protect you. I, I got you, right? I don't think that's as funny as I do. So Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drank. And so here's Boaz, just this sense of being this protector coming out in full force. And, and he's being legit. He's not trying to woo her or win her. He knows how young men act in other places. And he says, Ruth, stay here. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. I'll treat you with kindness. And not only that, I have told my men and commanded my men, if they lay a hand on you, they are finished. And I don't mean they're getting a pink slip. They're done. And so, again, here's this worthy man of Israel treating this Moabite enemy woman with dignity and respect and honor and kindness. And Ruth didn't even belong to the people of Boaz. But Boaz says, you come, I'll take you in as if you were one of my own. Now watch this next exchange between the two because it's a foreshadow. This starts to open up the bigger picture that this is not just a story about a guy and a girl. This is a story about a God and people. This is a story about Yahweh, Almighty God, and all of humanity. Now, this exchange is a foreshadow of God and a foreshadow of Christ. And it's not perfect, but it's close enough to remind us and tell us that Christ is coming for all of humanity. Verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you. May he pay you back for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said this, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The present focus is on Ruth's kindness to Naomi. The future Emphasis is on God's kindness to humanity. See, this woman was told that she could take refuge under the wings and the arms of Boaz, that he would provide for her. This is a picture of what God does for people who are not part of Israel, who are a Gentile, who are an enemy or rebellious to God at one time. That for those who would come to him, he will spread his wings over and will provide refuge and hope and safety and satisfaction and fulfillment for anyone who would come under his wings. Paul calls those types of things a foreshadow in Colossians chapter two. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is not Boaz. The substance belongs to Christ. Because this is a key theme that runs throughout this story in all of scripture. 
that this God who had called out a people for himself, Israel, was not just to call them out so that they could have a relationship with God and enjoy that, but so that they could be a blessing to all the other nations to say, if you'll come, if you'll return to God, he will spread his wings over you and he will treat you like his own even though you were not his. And the way that happens for Ruth is that she is directly tied to Boaz, who shows her kindness. And Boaz is an Israelite who is directly tied to God. Does that make sense? The way that happens for us as a man or a woman today is that we receive the kindness of God when we are attached to Christ and tied to Christ and through Christ, we have a relationship with God. For anyone who comes under the wings of Christ, then we're accepted into the family even though we were not one of his own to begin with. Now, watch this. This is an even fuller view. So, in this next verse, Ruth's position literally is going to change. And remember why it was important to say she's a Moabite, she's an enemy, she's a foreigner, she's a sojourner, she's not a part of the people. Her position is about to completely change. And it's not an, in an instant. This has been a progression since the very beginning of the book that maybe we miss. And this is why I geek out on why this is so important. Ruth started as a Moabite, distant from God. Then she comes in contact with Naomi, who happens to be tied to the people of Israel. Even though she loses her husband, she and Naomi, she clings to Naomi because Naomi has some ounce of belief in Almighty Yahweh God. And she is allowed to return back to Bethlehem, the place through which Jesus Christ would be born to fulfill this promise. And then she was allowed to take another change in position. This foreigner was allowed to reap outside the edges to glean the harvest that she didn't even work for, that she didn't even put any effort into, that she was allowed to glean from the benefit of the community. Now brought into the field of Boaz, and Boaz says, look, anything you want in the field, you take it. Any water you need, it's yours. You're not a sojourner anymore. You're not an enemy anymore. You are as if you were one of my own to the point in verse 14, he says this. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come on, come out of the field. Come in and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. The reapers she once had to follow, she now gets to sit with and beside. And he passed to her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. This foreigner who was distant, off, an enemy was shown kindness and not just brought in, but brought in completely and fully to sit at the table and feast as if she were an Israelite, as if she were one of Boaz's own, which is exactly what God does for us. When we're rebellious and running from him, he says, come on in. I'm not just going to give you a little. You take feast of everything that I have. It was exactly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 in a parable called the Great Banquet. This master, this homeowner like Boaz, sent out invitations to all of his friends, and he had this party. He says, I'm making this feast and this festival. Come to my house on this day. You're going to have your fill of everything you would ever desire. So his servants go, and they send out the invitations. And on the day of the party and the day of the banquet, his servants come back to the master and say, nobody's coming. Everybody's making an excuse. i got to go take care of a field. i got to go take care of family. I have to go do this. And so nobody you've invited is coming to the party, which is a picture of the Israelites when Jesus came, that Israelites did not come to Christ, instead turned away from him. So the great master said, that's fine. Go invite anybody you can find. Go into the highways and byways, which means go find the sojourner and the foreigner and the broken and the widowed and the orphaned and the ones who don't belong and the ones who'd previously been enemies and the ones who'd rebelled against me. You go invite them and you bring them into my house 
house and they can sit at my table and they can feast with me because my arms are big enough to spread refuge over anyone and bring salvation to anyone who would come into my house. They can have a relationship and be family with me. Am I the only one or am I just doing a bad job communicating? Because this is one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. A foreshadow of what God does to us, this kindness and goodness to people who did not deserve it. He says, come sit at my table. I have given you enough that your heart will be satisfied and even more so that you cannot eat it all. And so Ruth runs back home to Naomi and says, you'll never guess what happened. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law where she had worked and she said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And in this moment, Naomi's eyes and heart had to have exploded because she understood. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said this to her, the man is a close relative of ours, but not just a relative. He is one of our redeemers. Boaz is showing this characteristic and this nature of God and his kindness and his goodness. And he's showing it through one like Christ who would come, who would redeem and buy back people out of rebellious, enemy, dead situation. People who were on the outskirts, who had no hope and no chance to provide for themselves. Christ would come and redeem and buy us back so that we could sit at the table of God, forgiven, free, filled with hope and satisfaction, where in other fields we could never find what we were looking for. It's a beautiful story of how God is telling us that Christ is coming to be our Redeemer. No matter where you've been, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've struggled with, or even if you think your life is not worthy or nobody would accept you, God says, I have throughout history made a way. I've made a way through Christ. And for anyone who would come, I've spread my wings. They're big enough for anyone to find refuge, to find satisfaction, to find peace and rest because my goodness overflows to anyone who would turn and accept me as their father. It's good stuff, right? I hope so. I hope you're encouraged. I hope God starts to open and shine bright his word to you. That's my hope every time I speak to you. I try to be eloquent so that it makes sense and I don't create any barriers or bore you to tears. I don't want you to get a 35-minute nap every week. My hope is to inspire and ignite a desire for you to study the word of God for yourself to give you tools to equip you to do that because it's in his word that he speaks this relationship and this romance that he has in wooing you and drawing you to himself, that he's done everything where you couldn't do for yourself. He's done everything to provide an invitation and a way for you to sit at the table and to be called one of his own even when you were not. That's good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we can't begin to thank you enough or to repay you for the kindness and the goodness you've shown to us. And if we stop and think where we've been, what we've done, and for some of us we've been a believer for so long that we, like the Israelites in the promised land, look up and feel like we've gotten ourselves here, that we're self-sufficient and we become arrogant and we forget that you're the one who made a way. And so, Father, for those of us in that situation this morning, I pray that you would remind us of your goodness, that it would cause this stir in our hearts to pour out to you thank you and 
gratitude and honor in ways that cause our lives to look different because we realize without you that our lives are hopeless and empty. And Father, for those who've never walked with you, that maybe feel like Ruth, that have felt distant, they don't know the language or the lingo or the, the terminology or the people or the actions that life is supposed to look like under God. And Father, today you would remind them or show them for the very first time that you brought Ruth, a Gentile, an enemy into your family and you desire to do the very same thing with them. So Father, give them the, the willingness or the courage to say, God, I don't know everything, just like Ruth didn't know everything. But God, I know enough that you're enough for me and I want to be with you. Father, we pray that you would renew and rescue hearts this morning. Thank you for your great kindness and your love toward us. And thank you for our Redeemer, Christ, who comes to buy us out of slavery, out of hopelessness, to set our feet, to give us a new position, to sit at the table with Almighty God, the owner of the house, the owner of the field, the provider of all things. Father, thank you for letting us take refuge under your wings. It's because of Christ. His name we pray. Amen.